Well, hello, podcasters, and welcome to our special Wimbledon-themed um, banking litigation podcast. 40, love, episode 40 uh, we're on now, and it's your favourite face for radio, uh, John Corey here, speaking to you from the commentator's box. Good morning. And uh, I'm joined here by my um, uh, uh, umpire, Kerry Morgan. Hello, Kerry. Hello, John. And we're both joined by our uh, guest, Ace Eleanor Dole-Sheaf, from our banking litigation team. Hello, Eleanor. Hi, John. Right, um, first up to serve is Kerry uh, with a recent case on sanctions. Uh, thanks, John. So uh, let's hit the ground running. Um, so the extensive global sanctions against Russia have been challenging for financial institutions to navigate. And the case I've selected for today is a good example of how applying sanctions to real life situations can require difficult judgment calls to be made with significant financial consequences for getting it wrong in the eyes of the court. The case is Celestial Aviation and Unicredit. And in this one, the High Court considered the impact of sanctions on payment obligations under standby letters of credit. And for those uh, of us who are not familiar with trade finance arrangements and UCP 600, uh, Kerry, do you think you could... Uh, explain how letter of credits, uh, how they work, and perhaps give us a slice of the facts. Oh yeah, of course, John. So a letter of credit operates a bit like a guarantee, committing the bank to pay up in the event that a seller does not receive a foreign buyer's full payment on time. In this case, the beneficiaries of the letter of credit uh, were, bene- were companies in the EU that had leased aircraft to Russian entities. The letters of credit were governed by English law and all payable in US dollars. And so the letters of credit were originally issued by a Russian bank, Spurbank, and later confirmed by Unicredit. So here, both the Russian aircraft lessees and Spurbank were impacted by sanctions. It's important to recognise that Unicredit was not seeking to argue that the relevant sanctions removed its obligation to make payment under the letters of credit entirely, but merely suspended the payment while awaiting receipt of licences from the relevant authorities. So, looking first at the UK sanctions regime, the court held that the relevant regulations did not suspend Unicredit's obligation to pay under the letters of credit, because those obligations arose before the regulations came into force, and the regulations in question did not have retrospective effect. I believe it was regulations 11, 13 and 28 of the Russian sanctions EU exit regulations 2019, if anyone wishes to read about those in more detail. Yes, that's right. Very well done, Eleanor. Um, So there's probably a bit too much detail to get into in this podcast forum, but I'll look at one of the regulations by way of example. So regulation 13 prohibits making funds available for the benefit of a sanctioned entity. So was Unicredit's concern that by paying the demand, this would let Sparebank and ultimately the aircraft lessees off the hook for payment? Precisely. So Unicredit was worried that this would amount to giving the Russian parties a financial benefit. No, Sparebank, right? Yeah, all the the aircraft lessees, Mm. that's right, John. Um, But the court said that the relevant trigger under the letters of credit was when the payment obligation arose rather than when payment was made. And Regulation 13 didn't come into force until after the date on which the obligations to make payment under the letters of credit matured. 
The court also suggested that payment by Unicredit would not amount to financial benefit for Spurbank in any event, because the Russian bank would not discharge its obligations under the letters of credit and would remain liable to repay Unicredit in any event. Okay, and what about the US sanctions? So the question here was whether payment in US dollars would engage the US sanctions regime, as it would involve a US correspondent bank and therefore potential US illegality in the place of performance of the contract. This led the court to consider the foreign illegality rule in Rally Brothers, which is that the court will not enforce an obligation which requires a party to do something unlawful by the law of the country in which the act has to be done. But the court found the impediment to payment presented by the US sanctions regime could be avoided because it was possible for Unicredit to pay in US dollars by alternative means, such as in cash, rather than through a correspondent bank in the US. Cash. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, Uh, so how much uh, was Unicredit required to pay under the demands? So around 46 million US dollars. 46 million US dollars. So the suggestion from the court was that paying $46 million in cash in the UK would bring the place of performance within the jurisdiction of the UK, or the English court, and thereby not engage the foreign uh, illegality principle. Uh, yeah, John, that's the one. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Uh, look, the case is just one of a number of recent decisions which shed some light on the English court's approach to this area and demonstrate its willingness to allow contractual obligations to be fulfilled in ways that don't contravene applicable sanctions regime, but which may go beyond the scope of a strict approach uh, to the agreement between the parties. As you were saying earlier, Kerry, pacta sunt servanda. John, are you doing Latin at me again? Let's move on. Yeah, well, getting back to the case then, John. So this uh, can be tricky for financial institutions who are inclined to take a cautious approach to fulfilling contractual obligations, which might otherwise be regarded as breaching sanctions. If you would like to read about this case in more detail, uh, there's a link to the blog post in our show notes. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. Now, I believe you have another case, um, this one about contractual construction, Uh, in this rally for our podcasters. Very different context though, right? Uh, Yeah, I do, John. So the case is Cantor Fitzgerald and Yes Bank. And here the commercial court dismissed a claim by a US investment bank to recover a success fee in relation to the public offering of shares in one of India's largest banks in 2020, uh, where the engagement letter was interpreted to have referenced only private capital raisings. And I'm highlighting this decision because I think it will be of interest to financial institutions in demonstrating the court's approach to contractual interpretation in the context of investment banking advisory engagements on equity raising transactions. So in interpreting the engagement letter, the court avoided a formulaic black letter approach to textual analysis and focused on the ordinary meaning of the words used. So as per your favourites, Arnold and Britain and Wooden Capita. Smashed it, John. So the court was persuaded by the use of grammar in the relevant clause that a success fee was payable to the investment bank only where capital was raised in the private market. This interpretation was supported by the surrounding circumstances from which it was obvious that a public offering was not viable as matters stood at the time of the engagement and was not contemplated by the engagement letter. 
So presumably the winning point is that while each case will turn on the particular language used and the circumstances of the transaction, this decision is an example of how a clause for a success fee drafted narrowly can lead to a negative result for the investment advisor. Exactly. So again, there's a link to the, the blog post on this one in the show notes. Your sir, John. Thank you, Kerry. Why don't you sit down and have a glass of juice? <laughs> uh, right. I've got an absolutely ace case for our uh, listeners today. It's Client Earth and Shell. An excellent choice for our deep dive today, John. I'm sure most of our audience will be aware of this case, and I'm looking forward to hearing your best shot at summarising this important decision. I shall do my best. Uh, Right, so Climb Earth, as our podcasters will be aware, is an environmental charity which uh, seeks to use the law to effect change. And as part of this strategy, uh, as a shareholder in Shell PLC, it sought to bring a, a derivative action on behalf of Shell against its directors. Now, Client Earth's underlying claim alleged that the directors had breached their statutory duties owed to Shell as a result of acts and omissions relating to, first, uh, Shell's energy transition strategy, uh, and secondly, uh, the director's response to an order made by the Hague District Court from a climate change uh, case that Shell was involved in uh, in 2021. Now, the statutory procedure for derivative actions is governed by Part 11 of the Companies Act 2006, and that provides uh, for a permission stage aimed at weeding out unmeritorious uh, claims before you get onto the substantive matter. And the high-level outcome is that the court ruled that Client Earth had failed to meet the initial threshold of establishing a prima facie case for granting permission and that therefore dismissed the application. I guess you could say that the court just didn't see the point. Ah, yes, very good on that. So I think I think this case is just so important because mm. this type of derivative action could be used to pursue claims against any big corporates, including banks, uh, and whether related to achieving net zero targets or to challenge any other strategic and long-term decisions for the business. But I think the judgment provides some comfort on that front to boards, John. Yeah, and look, I think your your, your point there, uh, Kerry, was absolutely spot on. You know, the courts don't like second-guessing um, uh, directors' decisions. Fortunately for many company boards, this decision does suggest that the court will be very slow to allow shareholders with small de minimis shareholdings to use the derivative uh, procedure to challenge directors' decisions of this kind, which are made in good faith, including as to how the company should address Uh, risks posed by climate change. So can you hit us with the key takeaways from the decision, John? I certainly can. Uh, Most importantly, I think the decision suggests that the court is, as we were just saying, extremely reluctant uh, to interfere in company management decisions. The the court will generally take the approach that it's for the directors themselves to determine how best to promote the success of the company. And for the claim to succeed, it would have had to have called for the court to interfere with and second-guess the decisions of the directors, who would have weighed numerous competing factors and obviously have extensive knowledge of their own company. Yes, I think it's quite clear that the court's view was that the proper forum for clients to voice its concerns as to the director's conduct was by a vote of the members in a general meeting. Yeah, it was quite interesting. The court was quite critical, I think it's fair to say, of client earth attempts to formulate new and absolute duties in respect of climate change on directors. Uh, the general statutory duties on directors under uh, Section 172 of the Companies Act 2006 require directors to have regard to many competing considerations in determining how best to promote the success of the company for the benefit uh, of its members as a whole. 
The law does not superimpose on those general duties a more specific obligation as to what is and what is not reasonable in every circumstance. And the, the question is whether the decision falls outside the range of decisions reasonably available to the directors at the time. And I believe the court made some interesting comments on some of the other factors for the court to consider in these applications. Yep, that's right as well, Eleanor. Well done. It reflected uh, on a couple of other elements of the substantive application for permission, even though it, this was just an application to consider whether Client Earth had made out a prima facie case. Now, one of those factors was whether Client Earth uh, acting in good faith, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, was acting in good faith in seeking to continue the claim. And here the court felt that it was reasonable to infer that the primary purpose of the application was, and it's a quote, an ulterior motive in the form of advancing Client Earth's own policy agenda, and therefore the application was not brought in good faith. I think that point's likely to be a significant hurdle for any campaign group seeking to bring a derivative action to challenge the director's decision in line with the group's policy objectives. Yeah, I agree with you, Kerry. The court also looked at evidence as to the views of other shareholders. Oh yes, this was an interesting point too. So uh, the court quoted support for the director's decisions regarding uh, the energy transition strategy in votes cast by members at Shell's AGMs in 2021, where 88.4% had voted in favour, and in 2022, where 80% had voted in favour. And it looked at those figures as evidence of the strength of the member support of the director's strategic approach to client change risk. Yeah, so the court suggested that the level of member support for the strategy and its progress would count strongly against the grant of permission. Anyhow, it's not game, set and match just yet because there'll be an oral hearing to reconsider the decision. But even if the court is persuaded, contrary to the uh, initial decision, that a prima facie case has been established, there will still be uh, a need to have a substantive hearing of the permission application. So I, I suppose we'll have to wait and see what happens next. Anyway, podcasters, if you'd like to read more about this decision, there is a link to the blog post in the show notes. Now, with Advantage Shell, I'll hand over to you, Eleanor, um, who's in the ready position for a quick privilege update. That's right. Thank you, John. So our privilege update for this month's podcast is the case of Alcidec and Deckard, and I'll quickly provide some background facts for context. The claimant was the former deputy CEO of an investment authority in the Emirate of Ras al-Khaimah in the UAE. After his resignation, he alleged that he was wrongfully arrested without proper legal process and wrongly convicted of fraud. The claimant brought proceedings against the defendant, an international law firm who acted for the government during the fraud investigation. The claimant alleged that the firm had committed serious wrongdoings against him in the course of its work on the investigation. This particular decision concerned a challenge to the firm's claims to legal professional privilege, which the court ultimately dismissed, upholding the claim to privilege. Uh, sounds like a break point in this case. Uh, can you share any general takeaways for this one, Eleanor? Very happy to. So firstly, the decision clarifies that litigation privilege can, in some circumstances, be asserted by non-parties to the litigation, such as the victim of an alleged crime. The question is whether the non-party has sufficient interest in the anticipated litigation, such that it seeks legal advice and, in that connection, communicates with third parties to obtain information to enable its lawyers to advise. Secondly, legal advice privilege is likely to apply where lawyers are engaged to conduct an investigation, unless there is clear evidence that the engagement does not encompass the provision of legal advice and assistance related to the investigatory work. 
So I think the second point is particularly interesting because the court rejected the claimant's main argument in relation to legal advice privilege, that the law firm was not entitled to assert the privilege over documents created for the dominant purpose of investigatory work in which it was not being consulted in a legal capacity. The court was critical of what it described as an unrealistic and artificial distinction between investigatory work on the one hand and legal advice and assistance on the other. The decision shows that legal advice privilege can apply to an investigation where it's conducted by lawyers who are engaged to advise and assist in their capacity as lawyers, including the conduct of investigatory work. This sounds like it could be quite helpful from a financial services perspective. Do we have a blog post on this decision, Alma? We do indeed. There is a link in the show notes. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks, Eleanor. That wraps up our set of cases uh, for today. Uh, But moving on to the post-game interviews and regulatory reflections, I have the uh, first update for our podcasters. So in um, May uh, of this year, the FCA released a consultation paper proposing a revolutionary restructuring of the UK listing framework. been in the press recently quite a bit. Uh, It's also taken bold steps to reform the UK's prospectus regime and has published a series of engagement papers setting out in more detail the key issue it is considering. Now, while the driver of the rule uh, changes is the desire to attract and retain more listed companies in London, they're likely to have an impact on securities litigation. Uh, So we've had to think about the significance of the changes uh, for claims brought by shareholders, uh, in particular under sections 90 and 90A of the uh, Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you're interested in these developments, then please check out our blog post and there's a link in the show notes. Over to you, Kerry. What's your regulatory body today? Big news. You cannot be serious. <laughs> US dollar LIBOR is ending on the 30th of June. So I think by the time we release this podcast, it will have ceased, uh, marking a major milestone in the transition away from LIBOR to robust risk-free reference rates. Are you quoting that? Um, Yeah. Uh, However, it's actually not quite the end because we will still have synthetic LIBOR rates published by the UK uh, for the main US dollar LIBOR tenors until the end of September 2024. The synthetic LIBOR rates will cover UK law contracts and may filter down to contracts governed by other laws, although that will be a question of contractual construction under the law of the relevant contract in each case. Uh, For US uh, dollar LIBOR contracts governed by US law, US federal legislation will fix these contracts with alternative rates in the form of a SOFA-based benchmark replacement. Again, we've had a think about the potential disputes risks, including uh, the potential for conflict of laws due to the extraterritorial effect of synthetic US dollar LIBOR. Uh, For a detailed analysis of how these risks might arise under both US law and non-US law contracts, you can follow the link to our recent blog post in the show notes. Uh, Over to you, Eleanor. Thanks, Kerry. So the first update, uh, I'm sure, was a great relief to all industries across the UK. So in a move akin to Nick Kyrgios' trick shot of a 180 turn and hitting the ball through the legs, the government has announced that there will no longer be a sweeping sunset clause in the retained EU law bill, which abolishes all retained EU law by the end of the year. Instead, only a portion will be specifically repealed and the rest will become assimilated law. We have a very informative and detailed blog post on our Beyond Brexit blog, which you can visit via a link in the show notes to understand more about the bill and its proposed reforms. Thank you, Eleanor. I'm, for one, uh, certainly relieved to hear that. 
Lastly, and dare I say it most importantly, I want to announce the exciting news that we have published the spring 2023 edition of our biennial banking litigation update. We publish this update every six months, highlighting the most important cases and developments affecting UK financial institutions. Again, you can access the update via a link in our show notes. I'm also relieved to say it's biannual, not biennial. <laughs> thank you, Chuck. Uh, all right. Uh, well, thank you, podcasters, for uh, joining for a fun-filled match uh, today. Um, thank you very much to the umpire, Gary. You're welcome. And for joining us, Eleanor. Thank you. And from all of us, Roger and out. <laughs>